0: So hey,
1: we're excited that you're here. Uh, pray that you had a safe and, and fun holiday weekend. So happy late uh, 4th of July, a couple days removed uh, from us to you. And I want to stay, uh, say a special welcome to those of you that are uh, visiting from out of town with fam- uh, as friends or family or those of you from other Hope campuses. We are so glad that you are here, that you're worshiping uh, with us. So guess what? I think the 4th of July is like my new favorite holiday. It is... Awesome. It was Christmas, and that's great with all the the presents and everything, but especially with the weather like we had, amazing weather, okay, you get to grill, you get to hang out with all your favorite people, you get the day off of work, and as a guy, you get to blow stuff up, so this is really an amazing uh, holiday for me, very exciting, Uh, but I think it's more than that. This year, I don't know if you can tell, but there's kind of an energy uh, in, in the U.S. There's, there's a buzz, there's a, there's a sense of unity and, and uh, patriotism. Every Fourth of July, I mean, people even dress alike. I know, it's crazy. Everybody's wearing red, white, and blue for one day. It's like we come together and we focus more on what unites us together than the differences that we have and what tears us Apart and I don't I don't know something of that this year uh, that that energy and that buzz and that um, that independence that patriotic spirit might be because of a little event that's taking place down in the southern hemisphere and it's called football. Has anybody been watching the World Cup? Anybody? Just, just raise your hand. Don't lie in church. Just raise your hand. Okay. Soccer fans out there. Okay. And I wasn't one. It took me a long time, but I have been so excited about this. This has been uh, amazing. In the past couple of weeks of following the U.S. men's national team, if you don't know anything, okay, this is football for the rest of the world, right? It's not the egg-shaped thing that we like to call football, right? And we're just catching on to that. You have to know what makes this year in the World Cup, the, the soccer tournament, so exciting is that the U.S. soccer team has been historically, perpetually terrible, okay? So you have to understand when we make it to the round of 16 out of all the countries that play soccer in the world, we're in the final 16. That's a big deal. Turn to your neighbor and say, that's a big deal. That's a big deal. We're not messing around. That's a big deal, okay? So we're playing. I'm following the, the national team. This is how exciting it gets. Check out this picture. This is And I know this might be a little, I don't know, sacrilegious for those of us that uh, think Soldier Field is holy ground, but this is Soldier Field where the Bears play, filled with thousands and thousands of football, soccer fans, okay, watching. This is, uh, I I think this is the game against Belgium, the one we lost, but it's still exciting. Uh, They're just filling the stadiums, and not only this one, but stadiums and bars and restaurants and all over the country is just jammed, packed with people, so excited. Millions of people... Watching 11 guys run around for two hours trying to kick a round ball through a net. I know, that's how I used to feel as well. That's why it took me excited a long time to get excited about that. But I finally did. It really took off and I'm, I'm excited. I've grown to appreciate it. I love the passion, the, the non-stop chance. Uh, of the fans. The thing that I really like the most is when any team scores a goal, the guy that scores it like sprints across the field and then like runs and dives like he's on a, a slippy slide or something like that. And then like a whole bunch of junior high boys at recess, they all pile on it. They form this doggy pile on each other. I mean, these are grown men. Like, What's not to like about that? And even though there's all these things that I have come to love about soccer, there is one thing I can't stand. There is one thing that drives me nuts, and it's the same thing that drives me nuts about most other uh, major professional sports, and it's this: I want to play. I want to play the game. Does anybody else just feel like I want? Maybe not the running around for two hours thing, but like I want to experience the thrill of scoring a goal and having my entire country uh, cheer for me. Think about it: out of out of an entire country, whatever that is, you know, eleven. Guys from that entire country at a time get to actually represent the country and play on the field. So think about it. Thousands in the stands and the bleachers, millions more watching TVs and screens and arenas all around the world, 11 guys actually on the field playing the game. Here's the thing great setup for soccer and the World Cup. Terrible. Terrible analogy for what it means to be the church. Tons of people, passive spectators, and only a few get to play the game. In contrast to that picture, our scripture today gives us a much different picture, and I think a biblical one, of what it means to be the church. If you're not already there, turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, and that's where we're going to start today, what Laura read for us, turn to verse 9. First Peter is in the very, very back of your Bible, really tiny book, almost back by Revelation. First Peter chapter 2, and we're going to start at verse 9. So as you're turning there, you have to know the Apostle Peter has helped start some of these, excuse me, these new churches, and he's writing to these new believers. And the question on the table is, to be a Jesus follower, is it something where you just kind of passively sit by, or is it something where you're actively engaged In the game, and Peter writes this about their new identity. Verse 9 But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Wait a minute, time out. Did you hear that? Did you hear what Peter said? Some of you, I don't get it. I don't know what's going on, right? Look again. A royal priesthood. If you're like most people, that when you hear the word priest, the first thing that comes to mind is, well, a priest, right? A minister, a pastor. That's probably what comes to your mind. Someone who has been set apart as a priest holy to serve God full time and has this special connection, this direct line to God, and they this 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 priest prays for people and, and shares their faith with courage and teaches others because they're knowledgeable and you know they're 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 holy or something. And Peter in God's word here the Bible is saying that's you crickets. That's you. Every single one of us is a royal priesthood. Maybe we're a bit more than passive spectators watching the game called church. Maybe we're key players who are being called onto the field. The problem is, if we're honest, just like the believers that Peter was writing to, and and for a lot of the church, not just ours, but the church in general, we don't always live like that's true. We don't always live out our identity as priests. What would that actually look like? Well, that was the same struggle that Martin Luther was facing in the, in the early 1500s. The reality was in the Roman Catholic Church, uh, that's the issue at hand is that there was a few people that played the game and the rest of the people were standing on the sidelines. That was the way that Martin Luther saw the church being set up and he said, this doesn't line up with Scripture. It became, the church became a place where only a few get to play and the rest of the people are in the bleachers or on the sideline. Today we're continuing a series and actually wrapping up a series called What's a Lutheran? And we've been digging into this, the idea of what is it that makes Lutheran Church of Hope uh, Lutheran? What is that? And hopefully you have some more answers uh, now than you started with but one of the things that we've discovered is that what makes us Lutheran is not some clique for people with an insider language or that we're the best denomination or that you have to listen to Garrison Keillor and eat Lutefisk and Lessa. Nothing against those things. That's not what makes us Lutheran. That at our core, our Lutheran roots actually point us back to the foundation of the gospel and the mission that God has given us. We We began this series, and I want to repeat it again today by reminding you that our goal at Lutheran Church of Hope, our primary goal, is not that you would become Lutheran. Some of you are going, oh, thank God. I heard they're weirdos. That's, <laughs> that is, I'm lifelong, so I can point at myself, too. That's not our number one goal, goal. Our number one priority, our number one goal for you here is that you would know Jesus Christ. We are a Jesus church first, and we're a Lutheran church second. If you want look at, to look at things through a Lutheran lens, that's probably good. That's we're, how we're going to teach And preach, but what holds us together is what we call these four statements, these four beliefs based on Scripture called the solas. Everybody say sola. It's just a Latin word that means alone. And if we were going to stake our ground and and put our stake in the ground of as Lutherans and say this is where we stand, this is what it is. It's the four solas. The first one being grace alone. We put that stake in the ground that we're not good enough to earn God's favor, but it's only by His grace. That we have salvation. Secondly is faith alone. That we put our faith not in ourselves, but in that grace. It is by grace through faith that you have been saved. Faith alone. The next one is word alone. That it's not some human tradition or any human that is the final authority. It is the Bible. It is God's word itself that is the final authority in our lives. That if the word says it, we obey it. And last but not least, it's Christ alone is that Jesus is the very center of our faith. He's the reason we do what we do. It's not any tradition. It's not any denomination. We pursue, we worship Jesus. Not any tradition. Those are sort of the four pillars that make up who we are as Lutherans. It's the solas. But what you may not know is there's this little phrase, this belief, this writing that Luther wrote over and over and over again, that has carried on, I think, is one of the best contributions of the Lutheran movement. And it's this. Based on this scripture we read from 1 Peter, it's called the priesthood of all believers. The priesthood of all believers. It's based on this idea that all of God's people, all of us, not just those who are ordained or those with certain credentials or have been to seminary or standing up front or who preach, all of us are called to ministry. An easy way to remember that in soccer terms, instead of priesthood of all believers, that sounds very complicated, it's just everyone plays. Turn to your neighbor and say, hey, good news, everybody plays. Everybody plays. Turn to your neighbor. Everybody plays. Everybody plays the game. Now, some of you are listening to this and you're thinking, oh man, this sounds rather scandalous. Well, it is, especially if you grew up in a more traditional church. Some of you may have had a a Catholic upbringing and and, and you think about that, and this sounds, I don't know about that. That was the case 500 years ago when Luther was saying this. In the Roman Catholic Church, this would have been very, very scandalous. The Catholic Church at that time was led by priests, those who had been ordained for professional ministry. And not only have they been given power by the church, but they've been given power by the state, by the government. And most importantly, they were those who were believed to have the direct line to God. As priests, that was their job. They represented God to the people and the people to God. Growing up, did any of you ever play that game, Telephone, the, the old school way maybe with tin cans and a string in between? Remember that? Kind of have that image? That is essentially the role of a priest. On one end is God, essentially, and one end is his people. And they thought the role of a priest, as it was in the Old Testament, is to be the string in the tin can, to be the link, to be the connection. If you want to talk to God, if you want to put in a good word for yourself or a relative so that they'll go to heaven, you talk to the priest because they're the one that has the direct connection to God. And this wasn't anything new. They weren't making this up. This was based on the Old Testament. And the the, the different tribes had different functions. And the tribe of the Levites were the priests. Aaron, Moses' brother, was a Levite. He was a priest. And so their job was to represent the people to God. And so the priests were the ones that would offer the burnt sacrifices. They were the ones that were able to go into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, where they believed God's presence was the most fullest and and, and whole there, and they were the only ones that were able to go there. The problem was, this is 1500, in Luther's time, this is 1500 years after Jesus had already come, and Jesus' name among many was the great high priest, which means that when Jesus died, do you remember? The curtain, the veil in the temple was torn in two, which is symbolic of God essentially saying, I'm accessible to everybody. And that's why Jesus said in one of the passages that you probably know, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through a priest? Except through me. Jesus is changing the system. God came to us. We don't have to climb our way up to him. We don't need the string and the tin cans anymore. I'm not saying we don't need pastors. I'm not saying we don't need priests. Yes, we absolutely do. Their function, their role changes. When it comes to doing the work of the church, all of us have been given the same spirit and the same power. Check out what Paul writes from uh, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter. 12. We're going to camp out there for a second. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So we heard from Peter in the book of 1 Peter. We're going to hear from Paul now. The only thing we're missing is Mary, and then we got the trifecta. Some of you will get that on the way home. All right. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. Paul saying, this is now your new identity as followers as the, of Jesus as the church. For we were all baptized by one spirit as to form one body. Whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Let's read that last verse up there together that starts with even so. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. In other words, in this new reality, in the church that Jesus has set up, it is a body. And Jesus himself is the head, not the priest, not a pastor as the most important person. We are all members of the body, and it's Jesus' church. It's not my church. It's not some priest's church. It's God's church. And because Jesus is now the great high priest, the one who interceded for us, not a sacrifice, Jesus is the great high priest. Think about this. When he comes to us in Matthew 28 and says, all authority, meaning God's authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus says, therefore go and make disciples. Jesus is giving his authority. He's delegating that to us. He's saying you have the same spirit. You have that authority to go and make disciples, to go and literally change the world. In other words, you are going to be representatives of my authority. I'm giving you the badge to go and represent me in the world as priests, as ministers, not just paid pastors and ministers, all of us, all of us. There's no way that only me or Andy or any of us on staff can do that. I only work one day a week. It's just not possible. I'm just kidding. Some of you are like, what, he does? No. Some of you might have grown up Catholic and, you're think, and you have this very uh, high view of, of priests and pastors, and that's good, and that's healthy. As Lutherans, we believe in good, biblical leadership that's full of integrity and leaders who are worthy of respect. The church needs leaders. Hear me say that. The church needs leaders. The church needs pastors but as Luther rightly taught, not at the expense of the church being the church. Amen? Any leader, any pastor, any priest that gets in the way of God's people living into their calling as a royal priesthood is ultimately not doing their job. They're the bottleneck for the whole system. I mean, and for me to say that, for Luther to say that in his day would have been heretical. The problem is, it's biblical. It's in the Bible. It's who we are. That's who God is calling us to be. So then you're asking, John, okay, what if you only work one day a week? What are we paying you for, right? What's, what's going on, right? We do a little bit more than that, but what is the role then of leadership? What is the role of pastors? What is the role of us as a church staff? Well, for that, hop on over to Ephesians chapter 4. It's going to be a little bit before uh, 1 Peter. Ephesians chapter 4. And Paul answers that a little bit later, and he's talking about the role that Christ has set up for leaders in the church. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. It says this, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers, in other words, he gave us church leaders, to do what? Verse 12. To equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up, not squashed, but built up. Verse 13, until we all, all of us, not just one of us, all of us reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So what is the role of a pastor? What is the role of a priest? What is the role of a church staff? Is it to do all the work and have all the fun? We do have a lot of fun but not to get in your way. Our role is to equip you to be the church. So back to the soccer idea for a second. Every soccer team is, has a coach, and I was thinking about this. Biblically, the role of a pastor or teacher or a shepherd or a priest is a lot like a coach. If you think about it, the, the role of a coach, so this is Jürgen Klinsmann, that's his name. He's not from Iowa. You can tell. He's from Germany, so they always used to beat us in soccer, so if you can't beat them, steal their coach. Um, So that's what we did. Jurgen Klinsmann is the name, and he is a great coach. He is the coach of the U.S. men's national team. His role as a coach is during practice, not in the game, but during practice to equip his players to play the game, to give them coaching and support and advice and teaching, to give them the tools and the fundamentals of how to play soccer. But when the game starts, his job is to get out of the way and let the players play. Can you imagine how silly it would be if in the middle of a World Cup match and the the U.S. men's national team's out there and the coach comes running out on the field going, Stop! Stop! You're doing it all wrong! Uh, That's not what we worked on in practice. You just can't do it right. You don't have the credentials that I have. You don't have the badge that I have. And so I'm just going to have to send all of you to the sideline. I'm just going to do it all for you. I think there'd be riots in the stadium or something, right? All the players would go, what's the point? Everybody in the stadium would be yelling, let the players play. That's not the role of a coach. And that's why often what we remind each other as staff, our role is to equip God's people to lead their church. That's our job. Not to do it for you. Not to have all the fun, not to always be the one up front and to be the most important. Our job is to equip you, is to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. My prayer is that someday somebody will come out of this church that is a way better preacher than I am. Please, God. Making disciples who makes disciples. Every single one of us on staff is working and leading with people. There is a reason that 80% of the ministries and the teams in this church are led by Volunteers, not by staff. It's not our role to do all the ministry. It's your church. Let the players play. You know, thinking about that, it's funny, I people come up to me and tell me all the time, they look right at me and and they must have kind of a high view of the pastor and they say, John, um, I, I think I think I'm gonna start coming to your church. And I know when they say your, I, they, they're not thinking like ours, as in like our community. They're saying your church as if I own it, as if it's Hope Des Moines sponsored by John Anninson family or something like that. It's not my church. It's really not any of our church. It's God's church, isn't it? It's on loan to us to be good stewards of it, we as his body. I don't own it. It's not mine. It's ours together. A few weeks ago, we talked about a survey of they surveyed thousands of churches. What is the common characteristics that make the healthiest, growing, vibrant churches? And the number one thing that they said out of all these churches surveyed, thousands of them, was people that are passionate about their church. People that are passionate about their church. In other words, ownership. Meaning, we are a team. Meaning when one of us suffers, we all suffer with them. When something good happens, we celebrate with each other. In the highs and the lows of life, we are a body, we are connected to each other. Scripture calls you priests and ministers. And so as pastors and leaders, why would we want to rob you the joy of being who God has called you to be? Even if it sounds, whoa, that's way over my head. I don't know about that. It's really funny. Often I have people come up to me and they say, hey, that's great. Things are growing. Things are hopping down there at Hubble, at Hope Des Moines. How many ministers do you guys have now? And I just love the look on their faces when I say, ah, oh, I, I don't know, around 300. Oh, okay, now I get it. It's all of you. You're all the ministers of this Church. Nowhere in Scripture do I see the role of one part of the body being more important than the other part of the body. The most important part is the head, and that's Jesus Christ. That's who He is. That's why one of our favorite sayings around hope is, We're better together. Say it with me. We're better together. I don't believe you. One more time. We're better together. We say that, but I don't know if we often believe it all the time. But you think about the things that we've been able to accomplish as a church. You think about uh, packaging thousands, millions of meals for Meals from the Heartland. One person can't do that by themselves. You think about... uh, the, the giving campaign that we did, on the, the, our new facility that you see on the banner that people are working on, some people were able to give financially. That, those parts of the body. Other parts of the church body prayed. Other ter- parts of the church body have been down there working on the building and cleaning and doing construction. All these different gifts coming together. You think about Vacation Bible School that's coming up and, and, and all the different parts of the gifts needed for that. You think about us just doing, being able to have worship here on Sunday morning. And I literally mean this when I say we can't be the church if you're not being the church. (laughs) I know that sounds oversimplistic, but it's not like we're all here doing it for you. This is your church. What are your dreams for it? What are your visions for it? Who of you will be the ones to step up and lead this church into the future? We're here to support you and coach you and help you however we can. But you are the leaders of this church. And we believe in you and we believe that God has equipped you to be able to do that. I was talking to some of our uh, VBS leaders and they, they were talking about all the different parts needed for that and, and, and leaders needed, you know, for people to be shepherds and hang out with the kids and do arts and crafts and, and games and music and all sorts of things. There's a reason that God puts different people in those different positions. There's a reason that I won't be leading the songs. I'm not going to be singing any solos anytime soon in worship. That's Jed's job. That's my wife's job. That's why they're leading worship up here. That's not mine. People would leave and never come back if that were the case. So I'm going to do what I do best at Vacation Bible School, and I'm going to be in the skits, and I'm going to make a fool out of myself for Christ because I'm really good at that. So that's my role in the body, and there is a place for you in the body, and I want want you to hear me. When I say we want you to be the church, I'm not talking about, oh, John will be the pastor and Jed will be the worship leader, and then the rest of us are just assigned to these common tasks for the common people. You know, like setting up tables and chairs. You know what? There are people that are here hours before any of us. Setting up chairs, cleaning up this floor, putting out the Bibles, making sure the rows are straight. That's holy stuff. We can't have church if you don't have something to I mean, you could sit on the floor, but you wouldn't appreciate that probably. Every part of the body is needed. And what I have told our staff and what I have told our team, I don't care how big we get. I don't care how big of a head I get some days. I am never, we are never, nobody in this church will ever be above setting up chairs and tables. Because we have a savior that came and got down on both knees and washed his disciples' grime off their feet. And you're telling me that one part of the body is high and lifted up, and the rest of us are doing ordinary things? Jesus was ordinary. He was the servant of all. And you want to be a leader in this church? You serve. That's what it means to follow Jesus. That's what it means to be the church. Sometimes, though, I'll hear a phrase that, <laughs> not often, but sometimes it just breaks my heart. And it's when an opportunity comes up to lead a team or to lead a group or to pray for somebody or visit somebody who's sick or join a class or get trained in something. I hear, oh, I could never do that. I could never do that. And there's just like this weight that's on people's shoulders. And I I don't know where that comes from, but there's normally just these feelings of like inadequacy, insufficiency, And all that comes out is a lot of I feel statements. And it goes something like this. I don't really feel like I know enough about the Bible. I don't really feel smart enough. I don't really feel like a leader. I don't really feel like this is a good time. It's a good season in my schedule. And when things like that happen, it's so important for us that we remember the real heroes of the Bible are those regular people who didn't, feel like they had what it takes. And yet God used them despite their fears, despite their weaknesses, and used them to change the world. Ordinary, common people who learn to place their trust in their faith in God rather than their faith in their own feelings at the time. When is going to be the right time for you? When are you going to be fully ready? You might be waiting a long time. I love how a pastor and author, uh, Tim Keller, puts it. He says this. You can see it up on the screen. He says this. Faith is not primarily a function of how you feel. Instead, faith is living out and believing what truth is despite what you feel. Man, that can be applied to a lot of things in our life, can't it? Truth is, some of us, some of you, have been playing it safe for a long time. And you're up in the bleachers. And you're needed in the game. You're needed in the game. And you are settling for your current understanding of what it means to be the church. And we all have these ideas, and for some of you, it's church in a box. It's something like, well, church as usual. This is what it is. And we all have our views of who God is, of what the church is based on your own experiences or how your parents brought you up. And we put all those in a box and we say, okay, God, okay, Jesus, this is my understanding of church. And if I experience something or if I'm offered an opportunity to do something and it doesn't fit in my church as usual box, no thank you. I'm going to shy away from that. And I just want to walk through three quick lies, these beliefs that we have that just aren't. True, that I think get in the way of us living into our calling as a royal priesthood. If we look at these phrases and then we look at this truth that we are the priesthood of all believers, these two things are going to collide with each other. The first one goes a little something like this Oh, you know, this Christian growth, the spiritual growth, it's optional. Growth is optional. I mean, isn't church really, John, isn't church just about showing up to worship once a week and that hour and just kind of going through the motions and doing my thing? I'll get a little pep talk from the pastor, and then I'll go home and just get on with my life. Some of us deep inside believe that. Even though we want to live differently, we're operating out of this belief. And and, and we think growth, (laughs) discipleship, that's, you know, for those one Christians that want to get really crazy and really radical and really know the Bible and do all that deep theological stuff. But for me, I'm fine. I'm complacent. I'm good just right where I am. The problem is you put this belief, as church as usual, up against, oh, the believers in the early church doesn't line up. These believers that risked their lives to worship together, that risk their lives to find pages, torn pages of the Bible so they could read God's word. It doesn't line up with Jesus' call to us to remain in him, that he is the vine and we're the branches, and if we remain connected to him, we will bear much fruit. If you're going to bear much fruit, that's Jesus' call on your life, you're going to need to Grow. So maybe church isn't about once one hour a week. It's growth is not optional. It's who we are. It's who we are in Christ. That's what we're called to do, which is why Paul later on says in the book of Ephesians a little bit later from where we are reading, he says instead speaking the truth in love we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head and that is Christ. So to be a part of a church means that all of us go on to maturity. We grow up. We become adults. We don't stay in our childish ways. We don't stay with our parents' faith. We don't just stay on the emotional high of the mission trip we took five years ago. We pursue God today. We grow up into maturity. We become disciples who make disciples. And this is what Luther ran into as well as he was looking at people and they didn't know their Bibles and so they couldn't know the truth of who they were, especially parents. And the problem was, because the parents weren't biblically literate, generations of kids in the 1500s and 1600s were growing up not knowing the Scripture. It was in Latin. They couldn't read it. And so two things Luther did. One, he translated the Bible into the common language, which was German. And the second thing he did is what he wrote, the small catechism. He put God's Word and training and tools in the hands of, of parents, and what that does is it actually gets at our next statement of church as usual, and that's this, and maybe some of you parents have fallen into this. My job is just to get my kids here and somebody else can teach them. Nobody's ever said that. I've never heard that, but subconsciously, this is what we think. And don't get me wrong. We love having your kids here. It's awesome. We're giving our teachers a much-needed day off uh, today. They do an incredible job. We want them here but not at the expense of you being their parent. The primary spiritual influence in their lives is not one hour a week up in one of our classrooms. It's watching your life 24-7, seven days a week. They wanna see a faith that's living and active. And, and for some of you, maybe you don't have young kids, but maybe your kids are growing up. That, this job doesn't end. Your job isn't to drop them off at church and have somebody else do it. Your job is to be, get this, the priest of your home. In Luther's writings, he would write, mothers and fathers are the priests, the bishops of their household. You are the shepherd, you are the pastor of their hearts. And your charge as a mom or a dad, as parents, is to be that. And some of you are thinking, I'm single, I don't have kids, this doesn't apply to me. We need mother and father figures in this culture more than we ever have. That's what you are called to do. It's not just to get them here. That's your call on all of us. So we have, no growth is optional. I'll just get my kids here. And the last thing we need to dismantle is this. Oh, you know, we've touched on this. Church is just an hour a week, right? Church as usual. This is what it is. But here's my question for you. If this is the case... What happens to our influence in the world? What Des Moines needs more than anything else is not more church buildings. What Des Moines needs more than anything else is followers of Jesus that are passionately in love with him, that are sharing that love and serving the city around them. That's what Des Moines needs. And we can't do that if it stops here, if we just do church as usual. So think about it this way. What if the role of Sunday morning is to equip you to go be the church the other six days of the week. What would it look like if you start, started seeing whatever you do from nine to five as your role as a minister? Some of you are thinking, oh, no, John, you don't get it. I'm, I'm just a teacher. What if you weren't just a teacher? What if you were a minister of children's futures? That's pretty Holy. Oh, no, John, you see, I'm just an accountant. I, uh, I'm just a financial analyst. You're not just an accountant. You're not just a financial analyst. You're a minister of God's resources. Oh, I get that, but John, I'm just a stay-at-home mom. You're not just a stay-at-home mom. You're one of the priests of your family and there could not be a more high and noble calling. What if you saw what you do from 9 to 5 every day as your call to go and be the church, and you started asking the question, God, what are you doing in my workplace, and how can I join you there, because I know my identity is a priest and a minister of the gospel wherever I am. Certainly changes the way we think about 9 to 5. Certainly changes the way that, well, everybody's working for the weekend, Why? God's calling me to be at my workplace. I've got a purpose for my life. It doesn't matter what it is. God's already there. He's already shown up. I just want to join him. At the end of the day, the truth is that the world and even the church at times is full of critics. There's this growing number of people in the church that have kind of this been there, done that attitude. And just like on the sports, you know, the games on TV, we've got a lot of analysts People that love to say, well, I used to be on the front lines, but now I'm just going to stand and critique everybody else. Football calls that armchair quarterbacks, Monday morning quarterbacks. I'm just going to sit around and point out everything that's wrong with the church and everything that we should be doing. But what Luther cried out for and what Jesus is calling out for is to be who you were created to be and get On the field. The game is waiting, the opportunity is at hand. Will you take the kick? If there's anything I've learned over watching soccer these last few weeks, it's this. If you get a penalty kick, if you get a free kick, take it. A lot of these games are zero to zero or one to zero or one to one, so if you get the opportunity for a free kick, take it. So if you get fouled in that little box outside the goal, It's just you and the goalie, and that's the only thing between you and possibly winning the entire soccer match. So you would take it. So let's imagine you're 10 feet from the goal. Just uh, go ahead and go to the next screen. and You can kind of see a picture of this of how close they are. I mean, they're right there. They only have one person to beat. So I'm going to set my ball down here and just be ready in case this kind of—I'm going to try to— kick it. ready? Okay. This is how I keep people awake during the sermon, okay? So imagine that you've been fouled. The game's on the line. Millions of people are watching. Your, Your country is counting on you. You have trained. You've worked with a coach. You've been equipped for this very, very moment. You're at the top of your game as a soccer player, and here you are in the World Cup, and you have a free kick, and it's you and the goalie for a chance to win the game. The crowd's chanting. They're going wild. People are biting their fingernails on the TV, and you're there, and you're ready for the kick, and the a guy goes runs up and he goes no I, I think I'll wait for a better time you know I, I just don't know if I know enough about soccer i mean and meanwhile everybody's going crazy right i I don't know exactly how to kick it. What, what if I do it wrong? I mean, what if I mess up? I, I've never been in this opportunity before. I, I don't, I'm not really a leader, so I probably shouldn't score the winning goal, right? I, I know the opportunity's here, but I just don't feel like I know enough. I, I'm just not trained enough. I just don't know. Uh, I, think, I think I'll just wait for maybe a better moment in the game. It's silly. It's goofy. We do it all the time as the church. Are you a walk-by follower of Jesus? Wow. Great opportunity. Somebody else do it. Our job as Christians is not to be analysts, our job is not to sit on the bench, and our job is not to be in the bleachers is when the opportunity to be the church is here, which it is right now, here today in the city of Des Moines, we take it. We take it. And nobody knows that better than the U.S. men's soccer team. And this is a goal that was scored to put us ahead to win the match against Ghana. And there are people all over the country waiting, waiting in anticipation to see, will we score the goal, will we take the shot when we have the opportunity Let's take a look. When every person on the team does their part, amazing things happen. And so here's John Brooks with Chance. Wasn't even supposed to be on the team. (laughs) Young, young adult guy, not too far out of college, first World Cup ever, just a, ordinary guy changes the world. And I think the only thing more thrilling than being in one of those crowds chanting, Go! The top of their lungs. The only thing that could top that, the only thing more thrilling than that is being the guy that wasn't afraid to get on the field, to play the game, and take the shot when he had it. I literally think if he could, Martin Luther would be standing up in his grave right now here this morning saying, take the shot. And Jesus is standing up saying, take the shot. Be who I called you to be. Be a royal priesthood. Be the church. Don't say I can't do that if you've never tried. Don't say I can't be a leader. You have assumptions about what leadership is, but we need those people. You're not just a church full of potential volunteers. You are priests and you are ministers. And God has given you everything you need to go and be the church. What's your next step today? The opportunity is waiting. Take the shot. Amen? Let's stand together.